Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Brought to you by Penguin. It was a really hard and scary thing, so I felt I had to include it in the book because what it made me realize was how important food is to me. And I knew that before, but once you can't eat, once you can't share things with people and cook and do all that sort of stuff, um, you feel like you want to die. Yeah. And that's the way I felt. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Penguin Podcast with me, Dolly Alderton. I recently had the opportunity to sit down in front of a wonderful crowd at the London Palladium with the brilliant actor, writer and food lover, Stanley Tucci. We discussed his career, his love of fine food and his intimate and charming memoir, Taste My Life Through Food. Here are the highlights from that lively conversation. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to this Fane live event, which is being recorded for the Penguin podcast. We are here to talk to Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Stanley Tucci is a man of many talents. He is a revered and celebrated actor, both comic and dramatic. He is a broadcaster, a TV presenter. He's a filmmaker. He's a heartthrob. Don't think I don't know why half of you bought your bloody tickets. <laughs> I was talking to my mum yesterday and she said, I'm so sorry I can't make it down to London to see your event with Stanley Tucci. Uh, I don't think I can get out of work. And I was like, don't worry about it, it's fine. She said, if I, if I could get out of work, will he be doing a sort of meet and greet afterwards? Or? And I said, no, I'm not sure, mum, I don't think she No, I can't, I don't think I can get out of work. <laughs> I know your game. He is now also a writer and a bloody brilliant one at that. Taste is an amazing book. I read it in one sitting. It's funny. It's charming. It's full of gossip. It's just the right level of sweary. It's got great recipes. It's full of heart and humour. It is as magnificent as the man himself. So please give a big welcome to Stanley Tucci! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, oh, I need a drink after that. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Cheers to you. These Thank were hand-mixed by Stan backstage. Oh, very nice. Mm. Um, so there are lots of recipes in the book. It's a memoir that's broken up with recipes. Yeah. The recipe that intrigued me the most, that I'm just so desperate for you to describe to the audience and to me, is timpano. Oh, yes. Oh, someone knows what it is. I think basically it's an Italian scotch egg. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Yeah, on an enormous scale. Yeah. So yeah. describe what this, what this is. So timpano, is, that's the way my family pronounces it, but most Italians pronounce it timpano. So it comes from the timpano, meaning timpani, drum. So it's a drum, it might, even, it might be this size, the size of this little table here, or even larger. You make a dough that's like a pasta dough, 
and you line an enamel basin with it or a Dutch oven and you, <laughs> you fill it with way too much stuff. This so, list is yeah, insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's either really delicious or really disgusting, depending on who you are. <laughs> so you fill it with pasta, you fill it with a meat-based ragu, you fill it with uh, hard-boiled eggs, provolone, salami, little meatballs, egg yolk, uh, something else. I don't know. <laughs> Way too much. And then, <laughs> and then you cover it up and you bake it. And then you take it out. You don't really know how long to bake it. Because depending <laughs> on the size, it's very fickle. So then you take it out of the oven and you flip it over and hopefully you can extract it cleanly from its basin. And then you let it rest and then you slice it like a pie or a cake. And you see all the sort of striations of the of all the ingredients. And it's quite beautiful. It's incredibly heavy. It's incredibly salty. It's overwhelming for some. It's repellent to most. <laughs> I find it absolutely delicious. Uh, it is my father's favorite. We had it every Christmas and it was the bane of my late wife's existence. And it is the bane of Felicity, my current wife's existence on Christmas day. Uh, it is a wonderful treat, and it also, also causes real marital strife. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of marital stress, yeah. um, your description of you and Felicity's relationship at the beginning, it's such an amazing description of this, like, all these culinary adventures that you go on, <laughs> some of which are incredibly gung-ho, plucking pheasants together yeah. while you watched Saturday Kitchen, which yeah. is a detail I enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's real romance. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, and, you know, lots of travel and lots yeah. of going to restaurants together in London, lots of kind of luxuriating in the pleasure of food. Now, tell me from the beyond, what happens to all that and to all that fun and to all those date nights and that relationship with food as a couple when you are raising young children? Well, yeah. <laughs> is, I mean, it, is it all a mashed banana now? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, yeah, especially during lockdown, all that disappeared, right? Yeah. So you could prior to that. You have to make that time for yourselves. You have to, because you go mad otherwise. Yeah. But also because we love to cook, once you put the kids to bed, then we'll cook together. Although Felicity does prefer to eat earlier than I do. So loving to cook together is a great thing that yeah. saves you from the monotony of being at home all the time. Yeah. Well, speaking of lockdown, is this how the book began, that piece, that amazing piece that you wrote about cooking in lockdown? Oh, for, for the Atlantic? Yeah. yeah. Is that how this all began? No, it's not how it began. I ended up including it. But, right. But there, there was talk that I might be able to... People were interested in me writing something about food. Yeah. But I didn't think it was going to take the form of memoir. I thought it would be more sort of observations and musings, things like that. But the publishers suggested that I do a memoir. And I really said, I said, I don't really know if I know how to do that. And also I'm not that interesting as you're finding out. And, <laughs> and they were like, well, give it a shot. So I did. And luckily Felicity was locked down with me. So I had this captive audience and every, you know, a few days I'd go read this, you know, <laughs> and she'd go, I go, what do you think? She was like, Stanley, you just gave it to me five minutes ago. I was like, all right, whatever. 
lazy, you know. <laughs> uh, but she was really helpful because she, she, I said, I don't know what else to write. Yeah. I, I would get to that point. Yeah. You know, where you get stuck. And you go, uh, do I have anything to say? But she say, no, what about the story you told me about this? What about that story? What about the time you went to blah, 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 and you ate the thing? Remember how you talked about, and it relates to the blah, blah, blah. She has a great meta position, obviously, of my life. Yeah. So, which I don't. And so that helped me. I say, oh, yeah, you're right. And then I'd go back and write. And then three weeks later, I'd go, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. You know, <laughs> she'd go, what about this? What about that? You know, so that's, that's how it worked. So in the end, I'm glad I did it. I never thought that I would write a memoir, but so I did. So during that time in lockdown, you obviously couldn't have people around for dinner. You couldn't go for dinner. You couldn't go no. out for dinner. In the book, what comes up over and over again, <clears> which is something that I love, is your love of restaurants. Yeah. Did you miss that during lockdown? Was that something that you longed for? And how has it been since everything's opened up again? I missed it so much. I love the conviviality. I love, I also just love to kind of watch people in restaurants, which I know sounds like creepy, but it's not. <laughs> I swear, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by how people react to food and interact with each other and interact with waiters or <clears throat> chefs. I love to insinuate myself into the kitchen in almost every single restaurant or any good restaurant. The bad restaurants, you don't want to go into the kitchen. Um, you just go straight to the hospital, you know. So I don't, you know, you're just, you're just, in, I'm just interested in it. I'm interested in the way somebody creates a space that they feel people will be comfortable in. You know, what, what environment are you creating? And in that way, it's very much like the theater or very much like a film. I'm fascinated by the incredibly long hours yeah. and the, the amount of hard work that it takes to create a really great restaurant mm. on any scale, even a small scale. Like we were talking about that restaurant earlier. Um, oh, about, Andrew Edmonds. Yes, Andrew Edmonds. That is where Felicity and I had our first date. And it's this tiny little place, but it's just so romantic and beautiful. And it's the opposite of so many restaurants yeah. that we... No, now it's almost it's almost looks like it happened by accident totally. and that's the thing that makes you want to keep going there i admitted to stan that uh it's the most romantic restaurant in london and i admitted that i have never taken a boyfriend there because i only ever want to go there with the person i marry <laughs> <laughs> and i'll always get about a year in and be like i don't know if it's him mm. <laughs> well it's a sort of chicken and in, in the egg i thing, know isn't it? i know yeah. Maybe if I take him there, then maybe I'll be married yeah. three months later. Yeah. Maybe that's how it will work. Yeah. Um, Andrew Edmonds, you should all go. If you yeah. see me there with a guy, you know what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, something else that is a great recurring love of yours in the book that I love is your love of chefs. You talk about your love of Julia Childs and how important yeah. she was for your mother. You talk about your love of Keith Floyd. Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. He's amazing, isn't he? Genius. Genius. For anyone unfamiliar with Keith Floyd, can you talk about what the appeal of him was and his programs? Well, Keith Floyd, the first time I saw him was like in the, excuse me, 1980s probably, um, on PBS in America. That was the only place you could see anything on television that had even like a scintilla of culture. And, <laughs> and I watched this guy, he was like on a train, he was drinking like a fish, he was in like some oversized bow tie and he was as <laughs> drunk as a skunk and talking about something 
And I was completely captivated. And then I kept catching his shows. And he'd be cooking in the middle of, of a square in Tuscany or someplace. And he'd be cooking in somebody's kitchen. Then he'd be cooking in a, in a Michelin-starred restaurant. And all the while, just babbling and babbling and babbling. But the babble was so exact. Yeah, high-grade babble. Whoa, yeah. it was incredible. And I, and I write in the book about how... There's this one episode where he's in Provence. I mean, to me, as a filmmaker, too, I'm fascinated by it because, and as an actor, because it's almost an impossible feat. He does this, you know he's been drinking for hours. <laughs> and, you know, like you. And, 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 he, and he's, he's in a kitchen, he's cooking three different dishes at once. He does a take that is a six-minute take. So there's no cut at all. And it's a handheld camera. It looks really shitty, but you don't care. And he talks and he never stops talking while he's doing everything he needs to do to make those dishes happen. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And mm -hmm. I, I defy anyone to be able to do it without at least a full day of rehearsal and a script. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's kind of incredible. It's true genius. Yeah. Um, but he also, he did, a he did a thing where he made you feel, and this is what Julia Child did too, they made you feel that you could do it, that you could create those recipes. There was something that was so approachable about them as people, but also as the re uh, those recipes too. So you go, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. I can do that. I can make that Greek stew or whatever the hell it is. I can do that. Because he made it seem like, hey, this is easy, and this is one of the greatest things in the world. So um, I'm interested in now, who are the chefs that you love now, if there are any, and who, who do you, what's the cookbook that you return to at home? There are so many chefs that I love, and from all sort of ends of the spectrum. I mean, certainly Heston Blumenthal is incredible. He's a genius, and he's completely changed the way we look at food and never stops researching and never stops finding out and trying to find out new things about food and, and our connection to food. And I think that's the thing that Hessen has done more than a lot of people, which is figure out how we intellectually and sensorially connect to food. And then you have somebody like Francesco Mazzei, who has Sartoria, and he did our wedding, which I write about in the book, and this is, this is a guy from Calabria. What, what, what are you laughing? Why, why are they laughing? Which you wrote about in the book. What did I say? Read about in the book. Did I say read? Yeah. Which, makes it, which makes it sound like you were blackout drunk for your yeah, wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I still haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know how it ends. Um, but but he is, he's extraordinary because he comes from Calabria. And what he's done is he's taken these sort of classic Italian dishes, most from Calabria, and elevated them to a place that is like no other. I love Italian food. I love Italian produce. I love the Italian style of cooking. I love Italian restaurants. There is one thing the Italians, culinary speaking, cannot do. Yeah. And as I was reading the book, I was like, I wonder if he's going to address this. And you did. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Breakfast. Oh, that. Oh, no. Terrible. What's going on there? I don't know. They don't care about breakfast. It's weird. It's really weird. I don't know. When you go to Italy, 
there is no breakfast. <laughs> no, and as an American or, you know, as a Brit, you want, you want eggs, you want a sausage, you want a whatever. Yeah, is that asking for the moon on a stick? I don't you, think so. You know, <laughs> I wrote about catering and the catering on mo movie sets. And Italy, they, they just don't really do it well, which, yeah. you, which you wouldn't think. I loved that section of the book. Stan goes through all the different countries and what you could expect from catering on set because I'm filming something at the moment and I think our catering is really good, but I obviously don't know. I don't have yeah. any kind of yardstick for measuring this stuff. Yeah. And your best experience, well, one of your most memorable experiences with catering was Iceland. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Just ice. <laughs> Bring your own booze. That was it. That was it. Fantastic. Uh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. We were in, we were an hour's flight outside of Reykjavik, and it was a town of 2,000 people. I was going to be there for a couple of weeks, and I thought, oh, God, what am I going to eat? That's all I thought about. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited to go to Iceland because I'm fascinated with northern climates and all that. But I thought, oh, fucking hell, what are we going to eat? And we get to this really nondescript hotel in a very nondescript town, but in a beautiful, beautiful setting. And there's a little bar, a little restaurant. And I go down to the restaurant with some of the cast and we, I look at the menu and I thought, wow, that looks really great. That looks like a nice menu. And I, I thought, oh yeah, right. Yeah, sure. You know, Iceland. <laughs> and I order this food. <laughs> I ordered these langoustine and I ordered lamb and a salad. And it was one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. And then a 20 minute walk down to this old farm on a lake was even better food. Incredible vegetables, because they're all grown in greenhouses fueled by geothermal energy. I think 90% of Iceland is fueled by geothermal energy. It's an amazing, amazing place. And then the caterers were great, and they did a thing. I was filming with Michael Gambon one day, and we were on a glacier, or glacier, as you said. <laughs> and they cooked this stew called katsupa, made of lamb and all these root vegetables. And it was one of the most delicious things I have ever eaten. And I had three helpings. They just cooked it in this huge pot. Because we were on a glacier, so they couldn't bring trucks in and all that. They just had a burner and a huge pot, and they gave you this thing and a big chunk of bread. And it, today, it's one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Sitting on a glacier with Michael Gamble. Yeah, well, that's not so What bad. a life. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you know what? Something that slightly alarms me about this book that I'm incredibly in love with, the only thing that makes me worried is... You can be a little bit negative about the, the food on sets. Yeah. And you said, at one point, you said acting, which I'm getting slightly bored of as a throwaway <laughs> joke. And I'm reading it. I'm thinking, we've got to get some good catering on these sets because I cannot have Stanley Tucci giving up acting. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind. Yeah. No. Um, but as you go more into food with with your career, you obviously, you, you've been presenting this amazingly successful show where you go around Italy. How do you feel about acting now? Because you've been doing it for a really long time. I love acting. I love acting, but I don't like waiting. Mm. And that's the problem. It's, 
most people don't know, but if you're, you're, you know, you're making a movie, you're basically waiting around 80% of the time. It's so insane. And you, maybe you're working for 20% of the time. And, yeah. that, and I'm being generous. Yeah. So after 40 years of sitting in trailers in the middle of nowhere yeah. for hours on end waiting for someone to go, we're ready for you. Mm. And then you go in and finally do your thing. Um, it's a little frust frustrating. Not every movie's like that. But yeah. most movies are like that. Yeah. And because it's, they're technically cumbersome making a film. There's lots of disorganization. There's lots of miscommunication. And I do find that very frustrating. Therefore, people end up spending a lot of money on movies that doesn't necessarily have to be spent. So as a director, I am incredibly efficient, almost overly efficient, because I can't bear the thought of waste. You know, it's the old story of, people always say it was Richard Harris who said it, but I don't know, that somebody <clears throat> knocked on his door and said, you know, okay, now we're ready for you. Uh, I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. He said, that's all right. I get paid for waiting. It's the acting I do for free. And, and yeah. that's kind of the way I feel. Yeah. I, when you're in it and you're in the moment, it's great. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe the how much waiting it is yeah, it's and weird, obviously because I'm the writer as well I'm literally a professional loiterer like no yeah. one wants me there at all like at least there's a reason for you to be loitering around yeah. the writer is always just some creep standing behind a monitor sort of getting in everyone's way yeah but wait you're <laughs> filming what are you filming now you're filming my first book the adaptation of it Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, I mm. thought people were exaggerating about the, about the, look, I don't want to complain about it, but. No, it's no, just, I know. It's so many camera angles. Too many. Yeah. yeah. Can't we just do it on one? Yeah. Well, you can. You can. Do it on an iPhone. Yeah. Save us all some time. Steven, we go out for lunch. Yeah, Steven Soderbergh shot an entire movie on an iPhone. Which movie was that? I can't remember the name. Of it. <laughs> it was very but, successful. No, no. <laughs> but it was, it was with Claire Foy. And I have to say it was. It was incredible. Yeah. But, it, you know, everybody, there are reasons people do all that coverage. Yeah, of course, of course. Because yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you need to have it, or maybe you don't, but people <laughs> think you need to have it in the editing room. That said, I have screwed myself in the editing room, and I, I have, and it was really, it was fun. I, no, <laughs> I screwed myself in the editing room because... A little bit of a bawdy joke for you all there. <laughs> um, because... I didn't have enough coverage. Yeah. You know, yeah. and other times, you know what it is you want to see, and you know what you know what you want that frame to be, and you know this is going to play in one. I think that a lot of times people do excessive coverage because they don't have control over the final product. Yes, so they're doing it for safety. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just while we're talking about all things movies, yeah. there is uh, you're an incredibly a positive and hopeful and open-hearted and upbeat writer, except for one subject yeah. that keep, that is the enemy of taste that comes up over and over again. And every time it's mentioned, I'm like, oh, Stanley, again, come on. What? L.A. You hate L.A. <laughs> the animosity that drips off the words of L.A. It's bad, isn't it? <laughs> I've never been, so I'm so Oh, fascinated. you've never been? No, so tell me why. Tell me why. How long do you got? You know. <laughs> I don't care for it. And I remember saying this many years ago on a talk show. And the, whoever was interviewing me was just completely shocked. And I was like, 
I'm not insulting you. I'm not, it's like, <laughs> did you build the city? You know, it's not, is it your city? It's like, you live there. You choose to live there. I don't like it. I can say that. I don't like it. It's about one business. Everybody has a script and everybody has a whatever and everybody wants to be. Also, I don't like it when the, when the sun shines every day. No. No, it's uncomfortable. I like places with a longer sense of, of history. Yeah. I grew up on the East Coast and I had real winters, real falls, real summers, real yeah. uh, springs. And I like that. I like yeah. that. It is the one thing that I miss here is winter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think we do quite a good impression of it. Yeah, but it's an impression. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, I, snow is what I mean. Yeah. Snow. I yeah. mean, it's farther north, obviously, yes. But, yeah. But here it's just sort of sad. It's sad and drizzly. Yeah. It's sad and drizzly, yeah. all right. Yeah. Pathetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, it's dark at 3.30 and you're yeah. like, oh, it's cocktail hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always just so, probably because I'm self-obsessed, I'm always <laughs> interested in hearing those kind of transatlantic observations that Americans have when they come over here. Uh, but there's a bit in the book that I felt sad about where you said you felt that it was too crass to celebrate July 4th as an American in London. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if what, what are the things that you miss about America, any rituals or uh, any characteristics or food stuff about America that, that you're still longing for now, if any? Yeah, really, there's one thing I miss in particular, and Felicity always laughs at me, but it's sweet corn. Now, I know okay. you have it here, but it is distinctly different. So particularly on the East Coast in New York, and Connecticut and that sort of area, you get different varieties of sweet corn. Uh, one is, I write about in a book called Silver Queen or something oh, yeah. like that, which sounds like a band, doesn't it? <laughs> and not a good one. And, and it, it is, sweet is, isn't even the word. It's, it's really an incredible experience and it sounds funny, but I haven't I haven't really touched corn since then because it's just not quite the same. Mm. Um, and there's a way that my family, that I read about, a way that my family deals with corn, which is... <laughs> what is that? Deals with corn. <laughs> it's a lot to manage. Yeah, there's a lot to manage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have whole silos. <laughs> um, uh, so you take, we should take the bread, take bread, like it was my grandmother's fresh baked bread, but also just like a really good piece of bread and you slather it with butter. Then you have the hot ear of corn, you sprinkle that with salt, then you butter the corn with the bread, and then you get all the corn taste on the bread and the salt. And then My mouth is literally... The, yeah. And then you eat, the, you eat the corn, and then you eat the bread, and it's like you have these two meals out of these two stupid, like, little things, and it's... It, it was, I swear, it's, it's, it's one of the things I miss yeah. most of all. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that. And I do certainly miss the landscape of, of the East Coast. Yeah. It's quite stunning. Yeah. You talk about, I think it's in that corn chapter, you talk about just the importance of butter and salt, butter and salt, the magic mm. for mm. everything. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite sentences in the book is when, I can't remember what recipe, it's a recipe for something. And it's one for, of the... It's a, a lot, how, to cook, how to cook a lobster. No, there's another recipe where one of the actual ingredients is a fuck ton of butter. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Which oh, one yeah. is that? <laughs> when I read that, I was like, this is my favourite book. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dish called pizzoccheri. Oh, which is, yes, yeah, with made, the cabbage and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's made in northern Italy. Mr. Riva makes it at Riva. Okay. Yeah, but he does it only seasonally. 
there's a certain cheese that's in season. Yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> I think. Anyway, so it's made in northern, it's made in Lombardy. So it's buckwheat noodles, which are the pizzocchi noodles. And then it's literally a fuckload of butter <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a shitload of garlic. And I won't continue, but you know, <laughs> cabbage, potatoes, and these pizzocchi and Valtellina cheese, which is a cheese from that region, very specific kind of gooey cheese, almost like a like a Gouda or a Fontina. When, I, like when a you Fontina. read his description of this cheese, it is like reading erotic fiction. Yeah, it's there's something really sexy about it's, it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is one of the heaviest, but most at the same time kind of delicate and delicious things you'll ever have. And it's distinctly Northern Italian. The cuisine is completely different than Southern Italy, certainly. I wrote about it because we, we touch on it in the, in the show, in the CNN show. Well, speaking of the CNN show, it was a huge success, phenomenally well-reviewed across the board. Uh, there's one particular review that I'd like to read an extract from. Go ahead. <laughs> it's a review from The New Yorker. Oh, God. The food of Italy is beautiful. Not insignificantly, Stanley Tucci is beautiful too. <laughs> he strolls the narrow thoroughfares of Florence and Naples with the physical eloquence of a dancer. <laughs> at once smouldering and restrained. Jesus. He gazes at wheels of cheese and swirls of pasta as if the food must be seduced <laughs> before it will consent to be devoured. This is when it gets pretty tangy. Yeah. Thick framed glasses, white pants, a rich leather belt. A linen shirt tailored narrowly to the trapezoid of his torso. Cuffs rolled just so, the hint of a bronzed and muscled forearm. Now, with all due respect to that New Yorker journalist, that yeah. is not a TV review. No, no, that's, that's pornography. That's pornography. Yeah. yeah. It is an open letter of lust. Yeah. It, it's a proposition, I think. Yeah, um. yeah, yeah. And I think Felicity writes really well. <laughs> now, I know this question will embarrass you, but I have to ask it. How does it feel to be a culinary pinup, the likes of which we haven't seen since Nigella Lawson first <laughs> dipped those alabaster hands into pizza dough? I'm sounding like the journalist No, no now. yeah. Um, it feels wonderful and terribly uncomfortable at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> do you have women throwing their aprons at you in the street? Do you have... No, but I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's weird. But it's great. But it's, it's great, great. No, as it's well. Great. At my age, it's, it's I'll take anything. <laughs> so these videos that you upload onto Instagram, often yeah. of you mixing cocktails, some of you cooking in the kitchen, there are often some very lusty comments underneath. I've yes. seen them. Um, and there's one thing I have to be honest about that I really perv over that I'm desperate to touch and I can't keep my eyes off and it's your outdoor kitchen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, whenever we can cook outside, we cook outside. Because it just feels better. Yeah. Things taste better. And I remember my father, he loved to go 
we used to go on camping trips. Um, but our camping trips were like, you know, they weren't like other people's camping trips. Like we just had a small little tent and a thing and whatever. But he, he, we would cook like pasta on a camping trip. We'd have a fire, we'd have pots and all that stuff. We'd go with cousins and all that. My father loved cooking out of doors. And he always had this, um, <laughs> this little stove that with acetylene tanks, and two burners. And even on a Saturday morning at our home in the summer, he would be outside at like 6.30 in the morning cooking eggs on, he wouldn't use indoor, he wouldn't cook indoors. He just wanted to cook outside. Really? And he'd cook those eggs. He'd say, who want eggs? You'd be like, oh, I don't have eggs. And you had the eggs. And for some reason, those eggs tasted better. Now, yeah. why did they taste better? Was it because he loved the joy that he took and sort of was like, don't you just love those eggs? You'd be like, yeah, I love these eggs. They're great <laughs> eggs, you know? He felt that there was something more visceral, more connected to nature, just taking this little, these two burners and cooking outside. Yeah. It was sweet. It was just yeah. sweet. Um, I wanted to talk about the last section of the book, mm -hmm. which is a particularly moving section of the book, where you very courageously and very honestly talk about your experiences with being diagnosed with a type of oral cancer. And obviously, for someone who loves experiencing the world and their relationships and, and, and discovering things through their taste buds. That is, I think you describe it as ironic in the book, but it is it's <laughs> ironic and tragic as well. It's, it's a, yeah. incredibly sad to read about, but it's also very hopeful because you talk about what that experience was like, what it was like to be divorced from food and appetite and taste for mm -hmm. a while, what recovery was like and how it's made you reassess what food is for you now. And I would just love to hear you talk more about how that's affected your relationship with food in present day, because I found it very moving. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was diagnosed um, three and a half, almost four years ago with uh, a tumor at the base of my tongue. And um, luckily it had not metastasized, but uh, it was too large to do surgery. So I had to do high dose radiation for 35 days, which is a really sort of excruciating experience, and um, uh, seven rounds of chemo, mm. uh, which increases the efficacy of the radiation. Now, it was hard on so many levels. One, being diagnosed with cancer is hard. I had been misdiagnosed for two years, and that's hard to begin with, but my, my first wife died of cancer. Um, she had been diagnosed at stage four with um, <clears throat> stage four breast cancer, and she lived for four years and went through so many different treatments mm. that eventually ended up being futile. Mm. We went around the world trying to find different alternative treatments for her, as well as standard of care treatments, uh, but to no avail. So being diagnosed myself, although it was not at that extreme uh, point that she was diagnosed, was still terrifying. Yeah. Um, there was a very high cure rate for this type of cancer, so I was very lucky. However, I did not want to do standard of care. Uh, I was adamantly opposed to it, and but Felicity uh, convinced me, as did the doctors. Once I saw the statistics, it only made sense to do it. But what happens is you lose your, your sense of taste, but worse than that, actually, everything that you taste tastes like 
shit. Yeah. And everything that you smell smells like shit. Yeah. For months. Mm. I was bedridden for months and months. Your muscles atrophy. You lose all of your saliva. I had a feeding tube for six months. Uh, it was terrible. And, and my biggest fear, there were two fears. One was I wouldn't be able to, I'd get that checked. Uh, there were, there were, <laughs> there were, there were, terrible. I'm so sorry. Um, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. You don't have to read the book. Um, I, so the, the thing is, I was afraid I would not be able to speak properly again, therefore not do my job, be able to do my job unless they brought back silent films. And then the thought that I wouldn't be able to eat mm. uh, and share food and drink and cook and all that stuff that I love and share it with people. Luckily, it's all worked out. After three years, there's no evidence of disease, which is good, but I'm still compromised in that way. Uh, I can taste everything, mm. and that's the most important thing. Mm. Can I just sort of grab a, a lamb chop and, you know, sort of do that? I never did that anyway, right. but I mean, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Can you dig into a, yeah. a big steak and just sort of, no, you can't. You're, you eat things very slowly and carefully. And, but it's, it's, uh, I'm very, very lucky, and thanks to Felicity and, you know, these doctors. It was, but, you know, it, it was a really hard and scary thing. So I felt I had to include it in the book because what it made me realize was how important food is to me. And I knew that before, but once you can't eat, once you can't share things with people and cook and do all that sort of stuff, you feel like you want to die. Yeah. And that's the way I felt. Yeah. And I remember, and I paraphrase Rilke in the book, as one does. <laughs> and there's a question that he asks in letters to a young poet, which I'd read 40-some years ago. And he, he says, if you really feel like you'll die if you're not a writer, then you should be a writer. And that's what I realized was about food. Mm. If I cannot have that, then I, I really don't want to live anymore. Yeah, yeah, and what Thank an amazing, <laughs> what, <laughs> but what an, what an amazing hopeful ending because there's this there's this beautiful bit in the penult penultimate chapter where you list all the things you can yeah. now eat voraciously and with yeah. and with gusto yeah. and how happy it makes you and it just the idea obviously hate that you went through that but the idea of you having an experience that makes you realise what joy is yeah. for you in life and what relationships are based around and you know how you celebrate life I think that's a really beautiful realization to have and I'm yeah. so glad that you were brave enough oh, to write thanks. about it thanks thank you thanks yeah it's it's a hard thing it's it's a hard thing because there are so many people who suffer from head and neck cancer and some people are able to recover as I did some people are not what their connection with food is differs, you know, for, for everyone. The key thing is that as long as you can really be around the people that you love and experience that, that love, that's the most important. That's ultimately the most yeah. important thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
There we go. Right, before we end, I wanted to read something from this book, and I cannot stress enough how good this book is. It's so bloody good. I can't wait for you to all go home and read it, and you will read it in one sitting. Uh, it's a part of the book where you're talking about how much your mum loved Julia Child, mm. and you, as an adult saw Julia Child on television in an old rerun of one of her TV shows and you were so moved by it that, that you were moved to tears and you say, I saw in that moment the embodiment of what I and so many of us aspire to, to spend your life doing what you love and doing it well. To achieve this is a rare thing, but for those who can, real joy is theirs, as is the ability to bring that joy to others through their chosen vocation. I read that paragraph and honestly, I thought that's how I feel about Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Well, you're very kind. Thank you. But thank you. It is. I did feel that. Thank you. Thanks. I, I want to thank you all for coming and enduring this. <laughs> and, but really, thank you so much. It, it's, it's really very humbling to have you all here, you know, and maybe you'll read the book and that's great. But also I want to thank you. I'm a huge admirer of yours. You are an incredible writer. And, and. Thank you. And, and raconteur. And you're also like a really cool, funny fucking person. And, <laughs> and thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm greatly honored that you did it. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Stanley Tucci. Thanks, Noel. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did. And if that's whetted your appetite for more of Stanley and his fantastic memoir, Taste is available to purchase as a hardback, ebook, or audiobook read by Stanley himself and a link to it can be found in the program notes of this episode. Don't forget the full back catalogue of the Penguin podcast is available to listen to, and please do rate, review, and recommend us to others you think would like it. Thanks. Thanks.